Hello there and welcome to the Culture File Weekly with me, Luke Clancy, where in a fine week in June, near the end of time, we're hearing colours with some musicians who variously experience chromesthesia, and we'll encounter the musical occult in the form of musical ghostwriters, and we begin this time with a journey into the supernatural with the return of Jennifer Walsh and the latest of her investigations into humans and the things that are not humans. And this time she walks among the undead and their substacks. This is Jennifer Walsh's Things No Things. I read a lot, but I've never been much of a person for book clubs. After all, I teach at a university, which is like being forced to run multiple book clubs where you must somehow persuade the participants to write substantial reports, which you then must grade. But over the last month, I have surprised myself. I have become a devout member of a very particular, emergent, chaotic book club, Dracula Daily. For those of you who have not read Bram Stoker's 1897 novel Dracula, the book is in epistolary form. It's a nest of diary entries, telegrams and letters which begin on May 3rd and end on November 7th. And since May 3rd of this year, American programmer Matt Kirkland has been sending out a newsletter called Dracula Daily. The newsletter only comes on the days which have an entry in Stoker's novel and consist only of the entry from the book. Who, you might ask, wants to read a novel, and not just any novel, a suspenseful gothic horror novel designed to be a page-turner, in tiny scraps over a seven-month period? Turns out, a lot of people. Over the last month, a huge community has emerged around Dracula Daily, primarily on Tumblr. Literature professors detailing Stoker's exoticization of Eastern Europe. Hungarian historians explaining the local context. Epic discussions on whether Jonathan Harker's quote-unquote queer dreams were a result of the paprika hendel he ate being spicy or not. And yes, I now have the recipe and am more informed about the history of bell pepper varietals than I was a month ago. And then, of course... There are the memes, the jokes, the drawings of the Lucy Mina love story the fandom dreams of. I'm finding Dracula Daily encourages, demands even, a sort of unique close reading. You're reading a novel from 1897 with an eye for what the internet is going to pick up on in 2022. How delighted I was when the line... Once again, I have seen the Count go out in his lizard fashion, resulted in exactly what I hoped for, an amazing drawing of Count Dracula serving fierce looks in a lizard onesie, chunky heels with a bold red lip and reptilian handbag. But what strikes me the most is that using technology to read Dracula in a new way seems oddly appropriate. Stoker didn't just use letters or diary entries to provide the epistolary fodder for his novel. Harker's entries are in shorthand. Lucy is learning to type. Characters send telegrams and dictate their thoughts to phonographs. Back in 1897, Stoker positioned his characters as tech-savvy, modern individuals, all the more to contrast with the ancient supernatural forces they'd need to battle. And here we are 
125 years after the book was published, using technology to once again feel those chills down our collective spines in a new way. Jennifer Walsh there with her latest Things Know Things and you can find all of Jennifer's previous pieces for Culture File on the Lyric site or in playlist form on our Culture File SoundCloud page. And why not save yourself all the trouble of searching and subscribe to the Culture File podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or any one of the other myriad of portals to the hidden world of the archive. Now we're hearing colour this time with some chromasthetes. The experience of hearing colour, I'm doing air quotes there in lieu of a philosophical detour, is called chromesthesia. It's an experience that our reporter Tara Scanlon has mostly enjoyed since childhood, something she has in common with friend and fellow musician Kieran McGinn. But what is it that they are sharing and what is unique to each? Tara and Kieran linked up for a conversation on hearing colours. I'm Tara Scanlon, and I'm a musician and composer. I'm Kieran McGinn. I'm a musician and composer, and currently studying animation. When you try and describe chromesthesia to someone, what do you tell them? Associating music with colour is basically what I would describe that as. If you hear like a song and you identify a key, your brain will think of a colour to associate that with. When I hear music, I have an involuntary colour experience in the mind. So whether I want to or not, there's a colour in the back of my head. It's just there for no particular reason. When someone asks you, what do you mean by I see colour? And I'm like, no, I don't see colour No, you don't particularly see it. You just kind of think of it. It pops up in your head. Exactly. Like, it's not like you're blinded with colour with your eyes. Composer Olivier Messiaen, he had chromesthesia. He said, I see colours intellectually in my head. Hmm. So I can relate to that because that's how I see colours. Actually, I was reading something. It was about the early research that was being done into chromesthesia in the early 1900s. And one finding was that chromesthesia develops in childhood. Did that happen for you? I never really thought about it too much when I was a kid. It was definitely there. You know, when I was playing piano as a kid and I was playing guitar, anytime I'd be learning any new piece of music... I would automatically just associate that with the colour. Like, even if I was doing music theory, if we were learning about uh, key signatures, I I would just think of a colour for any kind of musical topic. How about you? Yeah, I remember the experience very distinctly. We were going along in the car and my mum was driving and I was sitting in the back seat, happy out, listening to the chorus. Runaway was playing. Everyone loves that song. My mum remembers me saying, that song is Pinky Purple. And she thought to herself, what is my child talking about? She discussed it with my music teacher in secondary school and he said, no, Tara's not mad. She has this thing called chromesthesia. Sometimes for me, it's not always the key that kind of has the colour in my mind. It can be the mood, the background of the song, whatever context you take it in. I associate different keys and tonalities with specific colours, mm. or sometimes even maybe pitches or notes, like just say the note C and the key of C are the same sort of colour. That's another thing we have talked about a lot, actually, and had many debates over, is the differences between our colour experiences. Oh, boy, yeah. All right, let's get into this. So, before we do, I was actually reading about two other composers, Alexander Skryabin and Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov, who also had their differences. The only key they agreed on was D major, and it was, for both of them, yellow. D major is definitely not yellow. 
for me. Um, I would go somewhere within the blue kind of turquoise area. For me, D major is yellowy green. Let's try C major. I, I think white, because C major is kind of just a neutral key, isn't it? For me, orangey red. Wow. That is a stretch. <laughs> <laughs> it is a really big stretch. Mm. From white to orangey red. E major, you know what? It's it's still kind of in that blue area. I'd say it's oh even gosh. it's even lighter blue. It's it, a win. I'm also light blue. Ah. I think it's time to put our chromostegia to the test. What do you think? Let's go for it. Let's do it. Pinky purple. I'm getting a very dark red. Could pinky purple and then darker tones no, of purple as well. I'm not getting any purple from that. Should we listen to the next one? Let's go. Getting kind of pinky purple vibes off this one. I'm not getting a clear key from this. I'm getting a no. tonal fusion yeah. of kind of like E major, C sharp minor, F sharp minor, A major. Not it's very, a blue blur for me. It's, it's a blur, yeah. Let's try something completely different. I'm thinking of like pitch black here. Yeah, I'm struggling to get a key. For me, this is quite muddy green. Mm. I can understand where you're coming from there, though, because there really is, like, it's an atonal piece, so there's no sense of, like, key or anything there. Chromastasia is very personal. It yeah. definitely varies, you know, from person oh, to person. Yeah. <laughs> I've discovered that, yeah. And we're just two people who have it. So imagine mm. other chromastetes. That's what you call someone who has chromastasia. Mm. Or so you are a chromastete. I am a chromastete. And we're very different chromastetes. I mean, that test just shows how different our colour keys associations are. I find it wild. <laughs> it's crazy. It's kind of bizarre. Do you know any modern artists who have it? You know what? I, I don't know. I'm... I know a few and I've only discovered them recently. I did not know Lady Gaga had chromastasia. For real? Yeah. Lord has it as well and she uses it in her songwriting. And oh. she can like see the colours she wants the finished song to be. When you're like, you know, composing music, does chromastasia play a part in that for you? Now, like, when I think of it, have you had that experience? Yeah, it actually plays oh. a really big role for me. I've done a bit of scoring to screen, and I find when I have to write to a visual, it will really dictate the key I write in. Like, just say I had to write for a nighttime film scene. For me, it wouldn't be correct unless the sound had a nocturnal colour palette. It'd have to be some of the keys that I have darker colour associations with. Like, yeah. just say B-flat major, which is kind of dark purple. C minor which is a dark blue those keys for me it's about realising the visual colours through music God isn't it funny how over a hundred years ago Scriabin, Rimsky, Korsakoff and Rachmaninoff were sitting in a cafe in Paris discussing colour key associations and here we are over a hundred years later having a similar conversation I didn't even know it was around that long I didn't even know it was a thing myself until a few years ago. <laughs> and I'm sure there'll be many more debates about it, and definitely between us. Yeah. Well, I'm not finished. I want to find out. Tara Scanlon there was talking to Kieran McGinn about chromesthesia. As you've heard, among the composers who experienced chromesthesia was Alexander Scriabin, who developed an elaborate theory of the relationship between music and colour. The composer's music has fascinated pianist Ivan Ilyich, and a little while back we joined him piano side to hear about his own explorations in musical colour. Many people know him exclusively for the fact that he 
had this um, condition where every note meant a color for him. And he wrote pieces, for example, for the organ where uh, they would be connected to uh, this kind of visual display. Actually quite contemporary. Again, you know, this is what we're doing today with audiovisual works. I mean, there are people... Uh, I just uh, I was in Brazil recently, and there was another person on the program in this festival who was playing a, a percussion concert, percussion solo, with videos that had been created to be displayed while he was playing, where everything was, um, you know, in sync. Every single moment, uh, all the rhythms were were in sync with exactly with the video. And I find that, you know, in in many ways, Scriabin, um he was a he was a predecessor. I mean, he saw that it would be easy, it would be interesting to combine. Um, I guess to really send you media in several different forms at the same time. And, you know, when that happens, of course, there's kind of an overwhelming quality. I mean, are, are you listening first? Does the visual come second? Is it the other way around? Um, but again, that, that's one of these things where you have to be comfortable with the idea that the public is not going to be understanding everything you're doing. They're just going to be, you know, receiving this sensation. I'm actually quite reassured to know that Scrabin agreed with me that these these tones that kind of, they're something called the circle of fifths, which is a way of kind of adding uh, increasing complexity to the way we read music, but there's also a, a relationship between these keys. So you start with C, and you can either, either go up or down. If you go up, it goes to G, and it goes up one more, and D, and then to A. And these are all quite considered bright keys. And it turns out that if you look at the colors that you know Scrabin was thinking of, these were oranges and green and yellow, and the brighter end of the of the primary colors. And then if you go in the opposite direction, from C down to F and B flat, E flat, A flat. I mean, listen to the, dif the difference between A flat and A. This is A flat, let's say, which is supposed to be some kind of a purple. And then you have A, which is green. You know, green is just, <laughs> it's in your face and it's unavoidable. It's the kind of thing you might use for a road sign to make sure that the person would slow down. But then you have... You know, D-flat, which is the kind of thing you might use to, um, to decorate again, you know, maybe a, a nightclub. Something very, very dark. Um, so to get from one key to the next, it turns out that if you're already in one color, let's say this, there's a piece by John Cage called Dream, uh, which is a very ambiguous um, piece in terms of tonality. Uh, he starts in this kind of E-flattish thing, which is a light purple for Scriabin. happen if we were to play that in a completely different key? What about A major, the green? It's completely different, isn't it? Um, and that's something that's become a, a concern of mine in, as a musician because, you know, one of the things that happens in a career is that you, you're you looking for new music, but it's not necessarily enough of a stimulant. You want to become a better musician. You really want to improve. So one of the things I've taken upon myself is to experiment practicing pieces in different keys. And I find that fascinating because, you know, I don't necessarily, the way Scriabin did, I'm not going to say to myself, well, let's try it in yellow now. Uh, I am still thinking of it as a musician in terms of technical things. But uh, I'm not unaware and insensitive to the difference uh, that it can make when you, you know, move something up or down the piano. It sounds completely different. I mean, there's one...
it's just it's astonishing to me because you know there was there was an example that that just happened to me as I was uh, doing that. You get so caught up in the difference in colors that you forget what you know what the transposition is, is supposed to be. But I find that that's something you know again to come back to Scriabin, that's something that happens in this piece Garlands, for example, uh, which I said sounded like Feldman. He basically has this strange material uh, that he then cycles through in a bunch of different keys. You can tell that what's important with him is not so much the fact that it's always going up by a half step and it becomes systematic, but that there are these little nuances. And actually, one of the reasons I play this piece is because um, I heard a, a piece that was quite similar, and I couldn't believe how creative the person was being with the colors they were finding in the moment of playing it. And I think that's something that, you know, when you've been playing the piano for 30 years, you, you tend to lose that magic, which is actually what the audience remembers. You know, they don't they don't remember the person who played all the right notes or, you know, that the, that the program, you know, the, the Bach happened before the Beethoven. And so chronologically that made sense. I mean, there are all these things that we kind of knock ourselves out about, but actually it's just that one little moment when the... It's when the dynamics change or there's some little nuance or some uh, little detail, some glitter in the sounds which is, you know, to be honest, as much of a surprise to the musician as it is to the people in the audience. And, and when you can share that together, that's, that's where the magic happens.
Ivan Ilich playing Scriabin's Guirlande there, and before that, talking about musical colours. And finally, this time on the Culture File Weekly, we are amongst the ghostwriters in their musical form. In the music industry, there are many ways of getting the work out there, plenty of which don't involve becoming a household name or even using the platinum terminal at Dublin Airport. Our correspondent Louise McMahon has been talking to Irish pianist, producer and film composer... Brian Crosby and classical pianist, composer and arranger Sean Rooney about some of the less visible forms of a life in music. My name is Sean Rooney. I'm a composer, arranger slash classical pianist from Dublin. The ghostwriting process a little bit for me, like it's almost like mission control with NASA. It's like you have the ground team on the floor that are doing all the technical stuff. They're putting everything together and the ones in the rocket are the guys that get to go on the fantastic journey and experience. What I'm trying to do is sort of create my own little genre of ghostwriting. An ideal life for me would really just be at home writing, sending off the package, let people take it from there and put their spin on it. I'm not really that much interested in the touring and fan aspect of music. I'm just incredibly introverted. My name is Brian Crosby. I'm a, a piano player and composer. I always avoided the kind of severe ghostwriting situations. That said, I definitely have lost work because of that position. It's a complex area. It's very hard to give definitive examples of it. When you get into a collaboration and the nature of composing for film, you never really know what direction the output will be. If you're too strict about that at the start by defining it, it very much often works against a natural creative process. If you're working on a a studio film, it's common practice to have any contributor sign a work-for-hire agreement and also an NDA. But the work-for-hire agreement effectively means that whatever contribution you give, you wouldn't have the rights to that that would be assigned to the lead composer. And so if there was anything that may have been described as, you know, a writing contribution, you would basically have signed away those rights at the start. That is commonplace in the industry. Ghostwriting can include composing music, lyrics, hooks, melodies and arranging in the shadows. Even Mozart was paid an upfront fee to compose anonymously for wealthy patrons. But sometimes musicians are credited for their work, but still operate as a kind of a ghostwriter, undetected by most listeners. Rock music icon Ronnie Radke of the American band Falling in Reverse commissioned Sean Rooney to reimagine their popular hits into symphonic Blood on the Ivories gold. I did a recording of a song of theirs called Losing My Life. It was just a solo piano version. I sent it on to Ronnie. It did take a number of months, but eventually he did respond. He said it was excellent. The following December, I got a message from him saying, is there any possibility you could do a piano version of The Drug in Me Is You? The process that I use for writing these kind of pieces really is sort of like trying to take a real classical context and putting it into something that's completely modern. For the Dragon Me is reimagined. There's a Chopin piece, Polonaise Number no. 2. It's a very dark piece in C minor. And I had the idea that there could be a similar chord sequence to the verses, which is this kind of double harmony in the left. 95% of the arrangements are easily playable and then you have the big piano solos and stuff which would be almost kind of similar to Baroque music or Bach. These kind of prelude kind of style 
pieces, they work really well. It's um, very classically inspired. I often have 50 or 60 different versions of the song before I decide on one. I do have credits on the songs. For I'm Not a Vampire, the second piece, I had this idea that it would be something similar to Beethoven's Sonata Number no. 2, which is the C major sonata, so... The original I'm Not a Vampire, is, it's almost like a jazz-style song. Um, and I had the idea that I could take this idea from Beethoven and incorporate it this way. I released a record called Imbrium last year, a piano record. It's recorded on an old 1920s August Forster. It's kind of treated, so there's a rail of felt. You see them on modern pianos, but I put it on this old one, so it dampens the sound. I'm kind of fascinated with the history of pianos. So I moved to Berlin about 14 years ago and I was part of a modular studio complex that I had set up there with a bunch of other guys doing the same stuff. At the time we moved in, a lot of the composers were just kind of breaking through to the world stage. Well, you know, Hilder, Gunnar Dutter, Dustin O'Halloran, the late Johan Johansson. While I couldn't get a place for myself, what was available in Berlin were these great big factory floors. We took over an old lease of the place. It actually became the heart of the European film music scene for a while I think it was an amazing amount of output from the place There's so much music to be output and so many different variations of that because of the process for every approved music cue in some cases up to 20 versions of that that were not approved your contribution to any of those pieces is on a variable scale the added intricacy on this as well is you, you deliver your music in various layers, so you don't usually deliver it as a final mixed piece. The producers essentially are combining those layers in a way that they see fit to picture. And that you know has a little bit of a bearing on the creative breakdown of who was responsible for it. If you start getting into the nitty-gritty of breakdowns of credits in the midst of the project, it, it's just not practical. What should happen is that at the end of a project, there's some kind of reasonable conversation to be had to say, OK, well, actually, the way this one worked out, your credit was X, Y, and Z, and you co-wrote these cues. Actually, often the way it happens is you sign away that right to negotiation at the start of a project. So that's where the problem is, really. I was involved in quite a high-profile film at the demo stage. The demo got the attention of the producers, and it went into onto the next stage, whereby the composer was, was hired. I was kind of part of the team and made it clear at the start that any writing contributions need to be credited. I wasn't hired because of that position, simply because the producers were slinging for uh, as many Oscar awards as they could get. They weren't into additional writers. <laughs> it used to be the case that a film with a composer with additional writers in the credits would not qualify as uh, to be in the category. You're negotiating with managers and agents when you're starting out. It's often the case that you're presented with a take-it-or-leave-it deal sometimes, and that's really difficult for new composers because it's very difficult to turn away an opportunity. I think they need to take a moment to consider how they're presenting their negotiations. It can be a very profitable way to be an introvert. And on the contrast to that, I actually really, really enjoy playing the piano live. 
it's a weird dynamic there sometimes where I have a huge craving to play live and other times where I feel like just being in the living room just composing so it's an interesting balance that I can achieve with this John Rooney ending that report and you heard also from Brian Crosby in Berlin but he'll be manifesting on June 23rd in Bellobar, Dublin. Louise McMahon was the reporter. And you know what that does? That brings to a close this edition of the Culture File Weekly. We'll be back with more tweaks to the sensorium next Saturday tea time. And I may not have mentioned this before, but the whole thing is also available via podcast to listen to at a time of your choosing from the Lyric site or your favourite podcast places. Bye now.